Welcome to the Mind and Matter Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Tobias Egner. Tobias is a professor in the departments of psychology and neuroscience at Duke University, where his lab seeks to understand the cognitive and neural mechanisms of adaptive behavior, which is the ability to flexibly match thoughts and actions to changing circumstances. So they think a lot about things like perception, memory, attention, action, control, and decision-making. They use imaging techniques like fMRI to look at what's happening in the brains of people while they're doing things like certain cognitive tasks. And they use techniques like transcranial magnetic stimulation to actually manipulate what the brain's doing while it's doing it. And so they're really interested in cognition, cognitive flexibility and control, the brain's ability to focus attention on one task and to flexibly and adaptively switch between different tasks. So we talked about things like multitasking and attention. We talked about the relationship between memory and perception, how the brain is sort of using what it knows, which it stores in memory, to predict what it might encounter um, as you're encountering new things. Things in your environment, the idea of predictive encoding. We talked about working memory and what this is for. We talked about how much working memory and other aspects of cognition differ between individuals and change as a function of what you're doing. We talked about how metabolically demanding different forms of cognition are. So if you're interested in cognition, decision-making, thinking, uh, things like cognitive control, your ability to focus and sustained attention versus uh, flexibility and switching between tasks, this is a really interesting episode. Tobias shared a lot of information from the field and from his own work about human cognition and what we know about it. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure, and vitamin D is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. And with that, Here's my conversation with Dr. Tobias Egner. You're very welcome. Excited to be here. Can you start off by just telling everyone a little bit about who you are and what your lab studies? Yeah, all right. So I'm a professor of psychology and neuroscience here at Duke University. Um, and me and my lab, we're interested in studying cognitive control. That is a term that covers the idea of using internal goals to guide behavior. Uh, other terms for this would be executive functions. The, the psychiatrists prefer to use that term. And we're trying to study 
um, how we sort of regulate, control, attention, and things like that by means of behavior. So we're doing a lot of behavioral experiments where people just are asked to follow certain instructions and push buttons in response to stimuli. We sometimes use a little bit of computational modeling to understand uh, better the underlying cognitive processes that mediate that behavior. And we also do a bunch of brain imaging. So if we have an interesting um, you know, phenomenon that we can uh, reliably show behaviorally, we can take uh, participants and usually we put them in an fMRI scanner and then um, scan their brains while they're performing the sorts of tasks that we develop with the behavior to understand which brain regions are activated uh, in relation to which cognitive processes that we try to isolate in the behavior. Um, and then, <laughs> additionally to that, we occasionally also use a technique called uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation. So this is a, a causal intervention, if you will, where you can non-invasively uh, briefly mess with a particular brain area in healthy participants while they're performing a task. And that allows you to get at uh, sort of causal evidence for a particular brain region being important for performing the task. So. Um, you can briefly mess with this, and the prediction would be that, oh, if this region really is important for, say, uh, upregulating attention on a task and you knock it out for a little bit, then that should be reflected in the behavior. And so, yes, yeah, so you study cognition. Um, mm -hmm. We're going to talk a lot about things like cognitive flexibility, cognitive control. But I just want to start off by asking you uh, kind of a, a vague question. What exactly is cognition? as opposed to um, other things that we might talk about, like emotion or perception? <laughs> yeah, that's a good, uh, good question. You know, cognition is essentially this study of, of, of knowledge or of information processing, and most typically studied in human, but can, of course, be studied in other systems. So cognitive science is interested in how information is um, being represented and, and uh, computations are performed on those representations. Uh, but in our case, in psychology, the tradition is really that cognition kind of covers sort of an umbrella term that really covers most of the mental processes that you would think you find in a textbook, uh, including perception, attention, memory, uh, executive function and so forth. In many ways, uh, all of this could be uh, concerned, uh, sorry, considered uh, cognitive processing. And so uh, broadly construed cognition covers sort of the whole gamut of, um, of psychology, if you will. Uh, it's also, you can uh, consider it an approach that is taken in psychology on studying, you know, mental phenomena. So cognitive psychology takes sort of an information processing perspective on asking questions about our you know mental life whereas say social psychology might take a slightly a different lens on that i see so so there's not necessarily um a hard and fast distinction between things like cognition and memory and perception and uh, i guess i guess you know another way of sort of coming at this question is mm -hmm. you know to what extent are, are are these human constructs that we use to make it convenient for us to talk about things um versus you know the lines being very blurry between you know when we look at the brain you know can yeah. you say ah that's cognition versus that's perception because you know it it, it is completely <laughs> different no, I, I would say not. And cognition would really be a more sort of an umbrella term, 
you know, mm -hmm. information processing in the brain, if you will, that, uh, you know, subsumes things like perception, attention, and so forth. Now, you mentioned the topic of emotion earlier. There, of course, there's a very strong tradition in the field to uh, distinguish, you know, cognitive processing from affective or emotional processing. Um, but even, you know, it's sometimes people call this code processing versus hot processing, you know, the, the rational cognition versus the uh, irrational emotion. But uh, in reality, most people in the field don't like that distinction and don't believe in this in the sense that um, there's a lot of gray area there. And, you know, emotional responses are typically about, you know, analyzing your environment, inferring that you might be confronted by a potential threat and that will elicit a fear response. And really, strictly speaking, you could call these cognitive processes also, you know, you're, you're using your uh, sensory input, but combine that with prior knowledge to make inferences about your situation. And that then elicits an emotional response. So in that sense, um, you could argue that even emotional processing uh, is a form of of cognition. Mm -hmm. When we think about things like um, what we might call forms of, of like higher cognition, mm -hmm. um, executive function, th thinking about problems in a very deliberate and, and conscious way, um, these things often feel very effortful. Um, like it takes it. I really have to sit down and do my calculus homework or something like that. Yes. Um, I have to tune out other things. I have to, you know, make a decision to do it. Uh, I have to go through all of the operations in my head. Whereas, you know, if we just sort of think about, say, sitting in our chairs here passively, not even talking to each other, um, I'm going to see everything sort of passively. My, I can't really sh shut off my visual perception. Um, and I'm wondering if you talk a little bit about. Um, so, sort of like the the demands that things like just passive sensory perception have as opposed to things like uh, deliberate cognition when, when we're thinking about a problem. And I, I want to actually come at that from the level of like metabolism. You know, when I, when I sit down and I, I work through a problem and I'm really thinking hard about something, it feels effortful. Um, yes, like it's yes. requiring more energies. Is that in fact the case? Do certain forms of cognition require you know, more ATP than other things that the brain does? Well, you know, the 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 energy sort of metabolism underlying that, I would say that's a little less well established. It's not as simple as saying, well, you're doing a more effortful task now. You have like this additional, you know, uh, glucose consumption or, or so. There, there is no doubt uh correlate to that but there's also a, a a long history of people trying to uh, put the finger on that and not necessarily being successful with this there's a whole literature in so-called ego depletion where initially that was sort of suggested as a pretty uh sort of simple underlying uh, account but that did not turn out to be a uh, very successful having said that no it's it is uh absolutely there's no doubt that we we perceive cognition active cognition as something effortful and one nice way of measuring this is that people uh actively avoid more difficult tasks for easier tasks all else being equal of course there is a uh, another consideration whereby um sort of a minimum a level of challenge makes things a little more interesting right there's something called desirable difficulty where you might find doing nothing boring and that's sort of aversive too uh, but uh, you know as soon as you come away from that and you put people in the lab and you say give them the choice between um 
picking from different tasks, they would tend to stay away from the tasks that take more cognitive effort. Uh, in fact, you can set up experiments that show that you can, uh, that they will even forego possible rewards in order to do a slightly easier task. So you can, uh, through clever experiment and manipulation, actually put uh, a monetary value on this and how much they'd rather not do a more difficult task um, than an easier task. One way of manipulating tasks, and this is something that we'll probably talk about later when we talk about cognitive flexibility, one way of manipulating effort is in fact to have people choose um, between options where they can either do sort of one task at a time for a bunch of trials in a row, and then maybe another one for a bunch of trials in a row, versus uh, another condition where they would have to switch a lot between the two tasks. And that, you know, we know that switching uh, is hard because it takes time, it takes a little extra time, you have more uh, scope for committing errors when you have to switch more between tasks. Um, but yeah, it also is subjectively perceived as more effortful, and effort in that sense is a little bit aversive. So people uh, would rather not have to uh, do more switching, and you can quantify that quite nicely with, with these kinds of behavioral tasks, actually. And, you know, one area that I want to spend some time on is the relationship between memory and perception. And mm -hmm. so I'm hoping you can talk about that, especially as it relates to this concept of predictive coding. Um, so can you talk about memory and perception and how they interrelate and what that has to do and, and what predictive coding is? Oh, that's interesting. Yes. Um, so the idea is that perception, when we think about it and often sort of naively think about it, right, the uh, uh, old metaphors for perception are something more along the lines of a, a sort of bottom-up style metaphors. We think of like, oh, it's uh, taking photographs or something like that, where you'd really have to um, analyze your external world, the, the stimuli that impinge on your, say, retina, for example, we'd have to sort of analyze them from scratch as you go through the world. Everything is sort of computed bottom up, uh, the, the things that surround you. But uh, in reality, this is not the case and this is not what we have to do. And this is thanks to memory, right? In reality, we go through the world matching external inputs to our internal representations or memories of the things that we've seen before. And that allows us to identify you know, objects around us very, very quickly. So most of the time we spend our, our perception really consists of recognizing, like recognition. We recognize something by matching something that we've already seen before and that we have knowledge about to, uh, to that knowledge. And that, of course, makes it much easier to and much faster to uh, recognize things. If I turn around right now, and then turn back to face you, I, my visual system already knows what to expect. And it can use these expectations um, to save itself a lot of processing, right? If I had to compute this all from scratch, that would take me longer and be more effortful than relying on expectations or predictions. To, and then I just have to check, hey, which parts of this current input are deviating from my expectations, right? And this is called prediction error. And then uh, principle, I only have to sort of update my um, perception as a function of these perhaps quite minor prediction errors because my expectation is pretty reliable from one moment to the next. Um, and this, you know, is grounded in the fact that our 
external world or us going to the world, our input has a lot of uh, what's technically called, you know, high temporal autocorrelation. It essentially means that what I'm seeing right now is a really good predictor of what I'm going to see in the next second, in the next second, in the next second, right? So I can use um, that knowledge to make generate predictions for uh, future input, and then I only have to really uh, process a, a small subset of that input, the little bits that are maybe unpredicted and update, and I go, oh, okay, this was a little different than I expected, but most of the time it fits and I don't have to bother computing everything from scratch. That's sort of the idea of, of predictive coding, that you can um, get away with relying on predictions and only have to update those in a proportion to sort of the errors in your prediction. And you know, what does this um, have to do with, say, the the stability of our memories? So, you know, our memories are are not like photographs where you know something happens and there's a there's a snapshot that's frozen in time completely. Um, but I think many people understand not all people, but many people understand that our memories are updated and they're malleable um, and they change all the time. And and you know, you were talking about our need to you know update these predictions about what we think we're going to uh, perceive. And so what does uh, this idea of predictive coding have to do with the fact that our memories are not these static images of something that happened, but they're these more uh, changeable representations? Yeah, that's a good question. Memories are, of course, sort of dynamic, or people think of them nowadays as really being constructed rather than, we, we refer to retrieving memories, and that is, you know, correct up to a point, but um, in, in a sense, this is yeah not a, 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 a carbon copy of what we experience. And each time that we retrieve a memory, we, uh, we bring it to mind, and we then uh, re-encode it as well. And each time you do that, the memory is, is slightly altered. So by that logic, if you use um, memories to get around the world, which we kind of do all the time, so there's really this, this perception memory interface, and there's many people that think about the, the medial frontal lobe system where the hippocampus sits that is uh, important for memory encoding and retrieval. Many researchers now think of that as sort of really a perception memory interface that um, allows us to uh, move through the uh, through the world. But yeah, then when you use memories to anticipate your perceptual inputs and uh, those perceptual inputs deviate from the memory, then, then memories get updated and, and re-encoded. And then you have a, a new memory that you can use perhaps the next time around to anticipate the sort of minor variation that you've just encountered. The whole predictive coding thing is a, is a really big area. And um, I have, you know, I've done work in this uh, years ago, a bit at the level of sort of visual cognition, where we were just interested in, hey, this theory, it makes these predictions about, you know, prediction error signals in perceptual in visual cortex, for example, which was not really something that had been anticipated by other views of the brain. We knew about prediction errors in the reward system based on what's uh, uh, sort of reward reinforcement learning studies and things like that. Um, so we were intrigued by this and uh, were testing whether you could really see a sort of visual surprise signal in visual cortex using neuroimaging. Um, and you can. But yeah, the, 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 that field as such is really uh, rather large. And there's a lot of kind of to and fro about the specifics of you know, what predictions exactly this uh, theory makes and so on and so forth. And I'm not necessarily um, currently 
sort of at the forefront of that. But broadly speaking, I think it's interesting that the the ideas around predictive coding have certainly had a huge impact on on many different fields. That the generic idea of the brain being sort of a predictive organ, I think, is now sort of very much a mainstream assumption in in psychology and neuroscience. I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one important form of cognition. Um, especially for primates and humans, is working memory. So what is working memory? And um, can you give us a sketch of how it works phenomenologically and some of the key areas or networks in the brain that are crucial for working memory? Yeah. Working memory is a really, really important construct in the sort of at the center of, of cognitive control and executive function as well, really. It's the notion that we can... Um, encode information either from the environment or maybe retrieving information from from long-term memory and we can keep it in in mind so temporarily and use it to guide our uh, behaviors simplest example of this is um, if you uh, you know give me a, a phone number verbally right now i can keep this information in mind for the next 20 seconds or so and then use it to guide my actions to actually type in this phone number in the phone. So even though in the meantime, right, this is information is no longer available to my senses, right? So working memory or short-term memory allows us to keep information in mind that is no longer out there in the world, but that's still relevant to us and use it to guide um, our actions. Now, uh, this uh, example I just used with a telephone number, this is something that people would consider declarative memory or working memory. It's all memory for items, objects, things, uh, that kind of thing. But working memory is also uh, crucial for keeping the rules of the game in mind. So what's currently, what are my current goals and how can I achieve those goals? And this is sort of where it intersects a lot with um, the topic of of cognitive control. So we use a sort of temporary representations of our current context. You know, oh, am I in my office? Am I in at home? Am I in somebody else's house? Am I in the car? And combine this with our current goals to then guide how we evaluate stimuli, how we respond to stimuli and so forth. And the working memory is very important for that because it allows us to do this sort of in a, in a flexible way because it's uh, not the same rules don't always apply, right? We are able, you and I, to um, take a, you know, a, a, a toothbrush and do very different things with it depending on what our current goals are. Is it to clean my teeth or is it to, you know, clean a little like nook on my stove that I can't reach with another cleaning uh, instrument, right? Um and working memory has for a long time been associated with the uh, frontal lobe of the brain. So there have been uh, famous, really famous, very early neuroscience uh, studies. The The most uh, influential one or earliest one perhaps was in the 1930s um, by a guy called Jacobson who was working with uh, with monkeys or macaques, I believe, and who... Uh, did brain lesions let off the frontal cortex in these monkeys and had them do classic or sort of a short-term memory task or a delayed response task where the monkey is being shown uh, two little food wells in front of his his cage so little uh, things were with with snacks in it and one of them would have a snack in it the other would not then the monkey uh, they, those are covered so the monkey cannot see them anymore 
Now, in order to pick the right well later on, he has to remember uh, which well was the one with the food in it. So this is the working memory component. And then say after five seconds, 10 seconds, 30 seconds or so, um, the monkey is free to pick one of these wells. And if he picks the right one, he can eat the snack. If he gets the wrong one, he doesn't get a snack. So um, doing this kind of experiment, Jacobson found that when he uh, severely lesioned the frontal lobes of the monkey, this short-term memory function would basically um, go away. So, so the, the monkey would no longer be able to keep in mind where this reward is hidden. Um, and this was the first time that the frontal lobes were associated with this kind of short-term memory function. And then in the 1970s and beyond, people started uh, looking at um, invasive electrophysiological recordings in this area in relation to working memory. So the famous early study uh, by Joaquin Fuster and colleagues where they demonstrated for the first time, oh, if you insert a microelectrode in the macaque lateral prefrontal cortex during a working memory task just like that, you can find neurons that um, start firing vigorously when uh, the cue is being shown to the monkey and that then sustain this firing throughout the delay period. So say those 10 seconds or so uh, when the monkey has to keep in mind the location where the food is hidden. And then uh, as the monkey gets the food, that neuron stops firing. And the idea is, was then, and many people still believe in that, that, oh, there are these prefrontal neurons that literally their sustained firing kind of keeps this information active, uh, even though it's no longer available to the senses, and that this allows us to then, you know, bridge this time interval and, and use this information in this case to um, obtain that reward. Now, by now, that's been obviously uh, decades of much more detailed neuroscience studies being performed. And the overall picture, I think, is still that the frontal and the parietal lobe are both really important for visual uh, short-term or visual working memory. And most of the literature uses visual stimuli for the reasons of, of ease, you know, the easy to use, and we're very visual species, and so are the monkeys. Um, but the exact way that that single neurons contribute to how these memories are being sort of kept alive over time, that view is sort of uh, has changed or there's there's a fair bit of controversy about how exactly that works, whether these single neurons sustaining their firing is, is really the most relevant signature or whether they are much more complex of dynamics that uh, keep information going. That's sort of very much an, an active ongoing uh, line of research. Mm -hmm. And how much you know how much individual variation is there in in working memory capacity say in, in monkeys or in humans um quite a bit uh, i would say um and those uh you, you can kind of probe those in in different ways so obviously different uh, people are more or less capable at, of storing you know different amounts of information how information is defined is actually a bit tricky there there's a you know a, a long history in cognitive psychology trying to identify you know the capacity of working memory there's a very famous paper by uh, george miller or a famous cognitive psychologist that uh said that working memory capacity uh is sort of um 
the you know the magic number seven i believe it was back then we said plus minus two or something like that where he said well you know um for most people if you give them some sort of random stimulus material they can keep uh, around seven plus minus two items uh in in mind quite nicely um but that really depends on what the stimuli are for example we have much better working memory capacity for objects that we know that we have sort of semantic uh, um, meaning to us then if I give you some sort of random scribble or some fractal or something like that that you have no uh, prior you know memory representation of nothing that you can verbally code about this or so so the exact capacity of working memory very much depends on the stimulus material uh, you use and it can be probed in a variety of different ways um, one type of working memory assessment that tends to be particularly useful in individual different studies so when people are really interested in say relating working memory capacity to things like iq or uh, or, or other capacities like that uh, those are so-called complex span tasks and there uh, the trick is that you are asked to sort of encode information sequentially. I might give you a string of numbers or, or objects to remember. But between uh, the times that I show you an object and the next and the next, you also are being sort of kept busy by having to do little math uh, equations, for example, so that you can't easily mm. uh, recode the stuff verbally. You really have to work hard to keep it in, in mind and you can't uh, you know, rehearse it under your breath or something like that, because you do these other things at the same time. And those complex span, uh, so complex spans, then uh, they show quite a bit of individual variation. You know, some people might have a complex span of five and others might have up to 12 or something like that. Um, and that span is uh, has a pretty reliable association with sort of other, you know, high level cognitive capacities like uh, um, IQ, for example. Mm -hmm. How, um, you know, you see a lot of stuff these days, you know, advertised on our phones and on our computers about, you know, training your brain and, uh, you know, apps that claim to uh, be able to do this. For something like working memory, how trainable is it within an individual? Can you practice it and get better at it? Um, and does it, does it change systematically over, say, uh, our development? Does it sort of peak uh, at some point in our lives and go down? Um, and how much how much can we do about our working memory? Can we uh, can we sustain yeah. it for longer if we train it in certain ways? Or how how malleable is it? Yeah, that's a, a very interesting and important question. Also, somewhat uh, contentious. The um, the overall, I believe this is still accurate. The overall picture in in these sorts of cognitive training regimes, including working memory, which of course a prime target for cognitive training it tends to be the case that you can get better at a particular task in fact the one that you're training on your working memory so if you train the working memory spine with a particular paradigm and particular sets of stimuli you would probably get you well you would most definitely get a little better at that over time but people have typically found it very hard to transfer these gains to other tasks. So it tends to be very domain specific, which is of course not really what you want. You would like to be able to train somebody to be generally better at working memory and then ideally have knock-on effects for you know, all manner of high level 
uh, cognition. But, you know, I'm no, um, you know, I'm not doing this sort of individual difference research myself much, but I think I know that literature well enough to say that it is still the case that most uh, uh, most academic researchers say, yeah, we, we have not found sort of the, the magic approach to generalize training gains beyond the special domain that you're training. And even within that, it might be, you know, restricted to the sorts of stimuli that you've been using and so forth. So that's, you know, in working memory and related domains, the question whether this sort of cognitive training really works outside of the exact parameters within which you train is still sort of up for grabs and people are trying to figure out what the parameters might be that would allow for more transfer uh, to other situations rather than less. But um, in general, I would be very skeptical of um, apps or other things that people try to sell you that they say will somehow, you know, enhance your general uh, cognitive abilities. Uh, it's probably um, overselling what they what they can do. Mm -hmm. And do we have any sense for, you know, neurophysiologically? what is accounting for uh, how well one is encoding information in working memory. So for example, if you take two individuals and you give them a string of numbers to remember, maybe one of them can reliably remember seven at a time, maybe the other can remember 10 at a time, or maybe within a single individual, right? Um, you know, if I'm sleep deprived, I'm not going to be able to remember as much as if I'm awake and alert. Um, what's accounting for the difference there? Does it have something to do with um, the pattern of neural activity in places like the frontal cortex? Does it have something to do with how uh, metabolically efficient the neurons are, mm. are being? What, what, is, what is accounting for the quality of, say, uh, a working memory task performance in, in neurophysiologically? Yeah, I don't think that anyone has a conclusive answer to this. Um, you can most certainly find that, for example, you would find variation in the you know overall activity level and say the lateral frontal cortex you know where you can you can show for example if you ask people to encode uh three versus five versus seven items right over a delay period you can show that oh in frontal and parietal cortex the level of activity increases sort of quite lawfully with just the number of items you're being asked to encode. So clearly these regions are doing something to make that happen and then hit, they sort of hit a ceiling uh, at the level where you can no longer add more, more items. But the actual underlying, you know, nitty gritty, you know, what computations are these neurons doing and why are they constrained in this manner? Um, that is not conclusively understood uh, it very likely will have to do yeah as you said with with patterns of groups of neurons that might for example be able to form these sort of spontaneous ensembles to keep information available and there might be a natural limit to the number of these ensembles that that varies a bit amongst individuals you know how many different you know, in in dynamical systems language that could be you know oh, how many different sort of space partitions or attractors can you sustain at any one time but ultimately that's just redescribing the same phenomenon using different language right we have some how these clear limits on how many items we can keep in mind and they differ between 
between and within individuals, the exact reason for that, we don't know. We know roughly where in the brain this happens and thus most likely which regions or dynamics within which regions will be responsible for this. But um, to understand that's really at the at the level of computational principles of neuronal ensembles, there are good hypotheses about this, but uh, no conclusive knowledge as far as I know. Mm-hmm. And you know, you do a lot of work on cognitive control and cognitive flexibility. Can you start to talk about those things a little bit more and give us a sense for how you study them in the lab? What's an example of like a, a task and a yeah. manipulation yeah. and an intervention that allows you to understand which parts of the brain are at play here and, and what are you actually having people do in some of these experiments? Yes, uh, yes, indeed. So um, let's pivot to this. So when I mentioned the the notion that working memory can also hold in mind, you know, task sets or the rules of the games. What am I doing right now and how am I doing it? Um, this is a an important core construct in, in cognitive control. So in order for us to um, evaluate or categorize a stimulus, for example, in a way that it's not the way that we typically do that, so we have to override some kind of habitual response, this is when we require cognitive control. A classic example is if I, you know, if you fly to the UK right now and you rent a car, you suddenly have to um, change the rules of the game because now you have to ride ride on the other side of the road and you will find this quite effortful and you will probably even find yourself initially, you know, talking to yourself, reminding yourself of the rules of the game. It's like, ah, oh, I'm driving on the left here, I'm driving on the left. Um, and this is sort of at the core of cognitive control, the idea that you can use this temporary rule, you keep it in working memory, and it can guide your actions, and it can guide them in a way that can counter previous sort of habitually or very much learned responses. And this is what makes us um, flexible. Now, when we do that kind of thing in the lab, um, this particular type of control, you know, imposing a sort of an arbitrary task set to override habitual responding is most classically studied uh, in a task called the color naming Stroop task. You may have heard of this, but uh, for the benefit of your listeners, let me describe this to you. So this in this task, I would put you in front of a computer screen and on each trial of the task, so every you know couple of seconds or so, I throw onto the screen a, a color word, it could be red, blue, green, yellow, and so forth. And those words are printed in different font colors. Again, blue, red, green, and so forth. So uh, that means that sometimes you could see the word red printed in red, but at other times you might see the word red printed in green or printed in blue. And what I'm asking you to do is something unusual because I'll ask you to name the font colors rather than read the words. So you would say have to push a button that corresponds to yellow if red is shown in yellow even though the word says red and this sets up a situation where you have to override a very well practiced response which is to read the words right you've been reading for many many years in our life so this is a habitual thing we do with words very automatic in fact but in this task we have to override this very habitual response in order to do a much less practiced task that is name these these colors okay so this sets up an interesting situation. It's meant to operationalize the sort of thing that you have to do when you have to ride on the left-hand side of the road, for example. And what you find, of course, is that 
people are very fast and accurate when they have to respond to these colors and they correspond to the words. Those are called congruent triads, so the word blue printed in blue. But they're much slower and incur many more errors when uh, they have to contend with incongruent words. So, you know, the word blue printed in green and so forth. So uh, let's imagine you performing this task, okay? And the, the way that we envision this is that you hold in your working memory these task rules. And in order to carry this out, let's say these are maintained in the frontal cortex, the frontal cortex has to bias how your visual brain is processing this information. Basically, your frontal cortex is trying to enhance color processing and suppress word processing, right? We're trying to not read these words, but we're trying to name the ink color. And this, uh, and this is how that process is thought to play out. Now, this is like imposing control because you have to override this habitual behavior. What I'm really interested in, and many of my colleagues are, how do we sort of regulate that? So we have the ability to do this, but it turns out that we also do this more or less efficiently over time or in different contexts. So for example, if, and this can be done unbeknownst to you, I have you do this task, and now I, uh, you know, in, in one block of trials, most of these stimuli are congruent, so the, the easy ones, and only mm -hmm. of them are, are incongruent, you will have, uh, you know, you'll have an easier time on average, but whenever one of these difficult ones shows up, you will do really poorly. You'll be sort of caught out. When I compare this with another block of trials where most of the uh, trials are the difficult ones, the incongruent ones, and only a few congruent ones, um, you actually on average do better in the latter, especially for these incongruent trials. So the idea here is that the brain adapt to the level of, of difficulty or demand of the task. So the level of attentional focus that you have to apply to do the task correctly gets nudged up or down uh, in response to the task parameters. If I make it easier, your brain sort of relaxes the, the effort that it spends on this. If I make if it's, it- If it's really difficult overall, you're sort of paying harder attention the whole time. And if there's exactly, only a few exactly. difficult ones, you sort of loosen up. So essentially you, you adapt to the change in demand. And the very interesting thing about this is that um, people do that without necessarily being aware of it. So you can sometimes, you can do these manipulations and ask people afterwards. So didn't notice that there were any changes in these conditions and they might not even have noticed it yet. Their performance shows that they adapted to this so that they actually increase their focus on the task during the times when it got harder and they relaxed their focus on the task during the times when it was easier. So this would be an example that we would think of as a sort of at the intersection of learning and control, because the assumption is that through your interaction with a task, you learn about how much do I have to focus here? And you nudge that up or down in relation to the stimuli that you experience. You can think of this, we can bring this back to the idea of uh, anticipation or predicting uh, inputs as well, because you can you can model this process with uh, so-called reinforcement learning algorithms, where the assumption is simply that your current focus of attention or the level of attention that you pay to the task is guided by sort of a recent average of uh, of the difficulty level that you experienced based on the assumption that, hey, if, if it was just difficult in the recent past, it's probably going to be difficult in the near future. So you can generate 
a prediction and use that prediction to guide how much attention you will pay on the next trial. And of course, if then, you know, over time, suddenly you encounter a lot of these easy trials, then that will nudge, they will slowly be nudged down because their recent average is now going down, down, down. Uh, and when you get more difficult trials, again, it gets nudged back up. And uh, we and many others have shown that this, the, the way that people adapt to these changes and difficulty, you can uh, capture and simulate that quite nicely with this sort of very simple learning assumption. You just um, adjust to the, to the change in demands. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one thing that we mentioned earlier is uh, the idea of task switching. Um, mm. you, know, so, you know, very often in life, just in general, we're going around, we're entering into and out of new contexts all the time. We constantly have to sort of update, uh, you know, the rules that we're applying to our behavior. You know, in the context of an experimental setup, like what you've just described with the Stroop test, you know, you could imagine, say, giving people a version of this where, the task is to um, say the color of the letters that the letters are printed in rather than read the letters. But then as the trial goes on, perhaps it switches and then you have to read the letters and ignore the color they're printed in and so on and so forth. Um, When you have task switching um, experiments like that, how do you measure sort of how difficult the brain finds it to, to do task switching? And what are some key variables that influence how good people are at it? you know, for example, age or whether or not they've got like a, a personality disorder or a psychiatric issue. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about task switching? Yes, absolutely. So the the kind of control and sort of regulation of control that I just described to you can be thought of as uh, sort of happening within a task, so regulating task focus. And complementary to that, we have, of course, the ability to switch between tasks. Those are um, usually sort of juxtaposed and two terms that people like to use for this is that um, focusing on a current task involves cognitive stability. The notion is simply, hey, I'm keeping a stable goal going here and I'm trying to, I can block out distracting information to stabilize my task. But as you say, oftentimes in real life, even when we have uh, engaged stably with a given task, I might be say reading a book in a in a cafe or something. I'm trying to drown out with my attention uh, the chatter from surrounding patrons. Uh, if my phone rings, I want to be able to switch away from reading the book and and answer my phone. Right, and we are able to do that. And this is what people like to call cognitive flexibility. And in the lab, we measure it with with task switching. So the kind of task that you just described is in fact something that people have done in the past quite a lot. But it doesn't have to be a Stroop task. We often, for example, we ask people, we show them uh, real-world objects, uh, photos of objects on each trial, and might ask them, uh, cue them before the trial, hey, uh, categorize the object in terms of its size, you know, is it smaller or larger than a shoebox, or categorize it whether it is a natural or a man-made thing, you know. I show you a little bird, you say, oh, that, that that's small and it's also natural, um, and, and so forth. And switching between tasks, the way that you assess uh, the actual cost of switching or the reason that we know that, oh, switching seems to be hard, it's a process that that takes cognitive effort and time, is that we can compare how long it takes you to respond to a, a trial if it is a task repetition. So you just did a, you know, 
object size trial on the previous trial and then now the current trial again is an object size trial so this is a task repetition versus oh the current trial asks you to uh, move to the task we say this is a man-made or natural object so that's a task switch if we compare the response time between these two trial types, we find that um, task switching is just reliably slower than task repetitions and also reliably uh, involves more errors. So sometimes this updating process to switch to the new task that um, is, you know, is imperfect, doesn't always work, sometimes accidentally still respond according to the old rules that you were just asked to do. Uh, beforehand. So this is uh, switch costs are sort of our measure of, of flexibility. Now switching uh, in you and me, of course, is something that we do a lot. Uh, some people are more flexible than others. But in the in the sort of like healthy participant population, those individual differences, again, they're, they're, they are there, but not not massive. But switching and cognitive flexibility also more generally is uh, impaired in a variety of of clinical conditions um, that includes conditions like autism, schizophrenia, and so forth, uh, and of course also can be affected by uh, by brain damage. There's certainly, especially to the frontal lobe. So there, again, there's um, a rich neuropsychological literature, for example, that has shown that um, so-called so set shifting, which is like task switching. Um, can be very impaired in frontal lobe patients. Although this is particularly true when the task rule is not explicitly told to somebody, but when you have to infer it based on feedback. So there's a very famous and classic neuropsychological test called the Wisconsin card sorting test. Mm. This is a, sort of a fun task where in each trial, I show you a, a sort of a playing card and it has... Um, a bunch of shapes in it. They, they have different numbers of shapes. They can have different shapes and different colors. And the participant is asked to essentially sort this card into one of, say, three or four piles. And you can sort this according to the number of shapes, the shapes themselves, or the colors. So you could apply three different rules. And in that task, um, I, the, you don't know the rule as a participant, but you try things out, you test the hypothesis, and the experimenter will say, yes, correct or, or incorrect. And so then you keep sorting according to, say, the color rule. But uh, the tricky experiment at some point changes the rule. So say after, you know, 10 correct trials or so, then the, the category according to which you should sort these cards changes. Uh, and again, you and I will, after a single error feedback, we'll be like, oh, okay, it's the new rule. Let's figure out which one of the other two it is. And we'll test that hypothesis and uh, move on. But uh, patients with frontal lobe damage um, find this kind of shift in response to negative feedback very hard. They show um, something called uh, preservative, perseverative responding. So where they stick to the old rule, even though they have been repeatedly told that this is no longer valid. They can even sometimes express that verbally they say oh yeah i know i shouldn't but they it sort of can dis, uh disconnect kind of um the the will from the action so to speak they, they continue to sort under the first ones uh, the wrong rule so that clearly is an impairment of being able to update your your mindset to understand that this is the new context and this is how i use it which we would consider a lack of cognitive flexibility 
Mm-hmm. And another thing that you know comes to mind here is, um, you know, we, we've got that that phrase: you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Uh, we we all have a notion that you know, as we age and we get older and older, yeah. cognitive mm-hmm. flexibility certainly seems to degrade over time. Um, so, to what extent is that true? And are there any uh, general patterns, like specific ways in which flexibility tends to get worse or at least change as we get older and older? Yeah, interesting question. Sadly, flexibility and stability, like pretty much all uh, cognitive uh, processes, do degenerate with aging. And I think the um, the profile, the trajectory of development is probably similar for most of these um, functions in that you you're at your peak capacity probably in your early 20s or so and thereafter there's a a slow and gradual uh, decline in these things so both for example in keeping out distractors so the cognitive stability piece and in the ability to switch tasks we we get a little worse with age um, again I am not a developmental researcher, so there might be more uh, data in this domain than I am aware of, but the studies that I am aware of just basically show that picture that you essentially would expect. You know, sadly, things get worse as you age. Uh, And while there are other cognitive domains where you have these interesting exceptions, where, for example, semantic knowledge, verbal uh, vocabulary and things like that can be retained and sometimes even better and, and older than, than younger participants. Simple priming effects stay quite stable over the lifetime. I don't think this is the case for these sort of higher level uh, cognitive functions. So uh, they generally will uh, will get worse with age. And you know, in terms of cognitive control and flexibility, generally speaking, which networks in the brain seem to be the most important for for being able to have high performance here um and in particular like like have you done interventions like you know um transcranial magnetic stimulation where you're disrupting certain areas and you see performance degrade uh what what do those sorts of experiments look like yes a, a very good question we and others have done those so generally speaking if you um Put people in a scanner during something like the Stroop task. So this is like, you know, regulating on-task focus. You find that, and you let's say that the, the most simple thing you can do is compare brain activity um, when people perform these incongruent trials with hard versus the easy trials. You very reliably find higher activity in the lateral frontal cortex, lateral parietal cortex, and in the medial frontal cortex, particularly a region called the anterior cingulate cortex, which is uh, for many years now has been a a, a hotly debated region in uh, in this area. Um, so those are more active for um, trials where you have higher demand on on task focus. Uh, you can also, of course, play the same game I mentioned earlier, where you can manipulate over time the the demands, so the proportion of these congruent or incongruent trials, and see, hey, where in the brain do uh, brain regions activity follow this pattern as well? And these are the same regions that will show uh, this pattern. They will, so the activity will sort of track the level of difficulty over time quite nicely. So one thing that we have done then is to um, fit one of those sort of reinforcement learning 
models to this kind of imaging data to identify a specific region of the, in this case, it was the left lateral prefrontal cortex that according to our fMRI data, we'd say, oh, this region seems to be implementing these, these predictions, uh, that, you know, the updating of attentional focus for the next trial. But fMRI data are correlational, right? So this is why we took this into the, the TMS lab, transcranial magnetic stimulation, and we asked, okay, if this region really does this sort of proactive adjustment, meaning, oh, we need to upregulate attention for the next trial or downregulate the attention for the next trial, then if we messed with this region just before the onset of the next stimulus, we should be able to remove these adjustment effects that we normally see in behavior. And this is, in fact, what we what we saw. So uh, it just prior to each stimulus, or not each one, but so for half of the stimuli, the other ones with a control, we uh, briefly delivered a few pulses to this particular region that we identified in the fMRI study. And we found that this um, messing with this region, it's, 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 uh, you can conceptualize that as injecting noise, so to speak, in the processes that this region might be doing at the time. And doing that then essentially abolishes these adaptation effects. So normally you would see a better attentional focus after an incongruent trial because you just had a difficult one. You're upregulating attention. If you zap that area, you don't see that effect anymore. And the same is true at the at the block level. So <clears throat> when you have a block with many difficult trials, where there's many many easy trials, that effect um, goes away if you mess with this particular with this particular area. So clearly, supporting the idea that the lateral prefrontal cortex is is, is crucial for implementing these attentional adjustments. Now, I don't know of a comparable study for task switching. Generally speaking, and this is sort of intriguing, if you do a task switching experiment, and again, you do the simplest thing, you just compare brain activity on switch trials with task repeat trials. So again, the harder ones with the easier ones, if you will, but here the hard ones are defined differently, right? You switch tasks rather than uh, experience this incongruent stimulus, you find very similar brain regions activated. So again, lateral prefrontal and parietal cortex, <clears throat> the anterior cingulate, and also some subcortical regions. So teasing out how what regions are doing in this case that might be different to what they're doing in the case of an incongruent stroke trial is actually something that's sort of um, yet to be done in, in great detail, like how exactly these regions contribute perhaps to somewhat different cognitive processes in both of these cases. For this the switching, there's one sort of a popular model of working memory and working memory updating that argues that in order to allow new information into working memory, you um, open a metaphorical gate to allow new information in, and that gate is in the basal ganglia. These are a subcortical uh, structures, uh, the striatum and the basal ganglia. Um, and the idea is that this gate is closed when you are focusing on a current task because you don't want to let distractors in, but it has to open up in order to allow a new task set to be to be entered. And by that would make the prediction that you should see very reliable activity in the subcortical regions during updating, during switching. And you can find that, but what we would really need again would be more causal data. So interfering, for example, 
through that region while people perform task switching studies. And that, to my knowledge, um, has not been done. You could, it's, it's tricky because it's deep inside the brain. You can't use TMS for this because mm-hmm. TMS only affects our fairly cortical superficial regions. But you could, for instance, um, try and recruit um, Parkinson's patient that have deep brain uh, stimulation uh, devices implanted, which is not so uncommon. Um, and there you can sort of turn on and off their, their striatal function, if you will. Um, and people have done this for a, a bunch of purposes, but I have not seen that done in a experiment that manipulated task switching and maybe the proportion of switches and stuff like that. That would be a really interesting thing to do. Mm-hmm. For the transcranial magnetic stimulation in humans, how exactly does that work? Can you give us a visual of what the setup is and then how the manipulation yes. itself is actually doing what it does? Yes. So the, the principle is actually quite simple. You have a large sort of wire coil. Typically, the coil takes the form of the figure eight. Imagine a figure eight, the size of, you know, your two hands, perhaps side by side. And those are um, sort of two wire coils um, put in this particular shape. And you essentially turn a large electrical current on and off that runs through these coils. Now, as you remember from high school physics, when you have a, an electrical field like this, perpendicular to this, uh, you will create a magnetic field. And if you uh, bring a, a conductor into this um, magnetic field, that will induce an electric current. And the, the brain or brain tissue is a pretty good conductor. So we can basically induce little electric currents into the brain by having this electrical field um, uh, generated close to the brain. Um, and, and so the way that's been done is really with pulses. So you turn this on and off, on and off, on and off, and that produces these little electrical pulses inside, inside the brain. Now you have to get the, um, you know, the magnitude of the stimulation just right. This, this technique has been pioneered in the mid eighties originally, and just been found that, Oh, you can, do this over motor cortex and make people's fingers twitch. You know, you can basically activate with a single pulse these upper motor neurons that, that would then um, trigger these, these muscle twitches. And then over the, the subsequent, you know, decades or two, people have sort of started to figure out, you know, we don't want to turn this on too high. You don't want to induce like an epileptic, epileptic seizure, right? Um, and they've also figured out that different patterns of pulses seem to be affecting the underlying neuronal populations differently. So it turns out, for example, that if you stimulate regularly at a very low frequency, like one hertz for a while, that this seems to inhibit the underlying neuronal population for a while afterwards. Whereas if you uh, stimulate at a higher frequency, like 10 hertz, that can excite the underlying population for a while. Um, and, And through this kind of sort of basic research of figuring out these stimulation parameters, and um, people have you know started to use this tool more and more in, in cognitive neuroscience. So to ask these kinds of research questions that we are asking. But um, once you move outside of motor cortex, it's a little bit harder to know exactly what's happening because you don't have this direct readout anymore where you can just measure muscle activity changes as a function of uh, of using these uh, these pulses but yeah so different kind of approaches have been developed um using tms and 
The one I mentioned earlier in our experiment where we messed with this particular brain region from trial to trial just before stimulus onset, that is one version. Uh, but another version is to 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 use so this pattern stimulation for a while offline before somebody does a task with the knowledge that, oh, um, this particular regime I'm doing here will inhibit this brain region for the next 10 minutes or so. Mm -hmm. um, but this is still, you know, very much... Uh, actively being figured out what exactly is going on, how exactly that works, and so on and so forth. So there's an active um, research area there in doing TMS in uh, mod in model systems, like in the macaque, for example, where you can then really look at underlying single neuron responses that will give you a better idea of what exactly is going on. Mm -hmm. When I <clears throat> think about cognitive control and flexibility, throughout my day. Um, and you know, every day is different, but in the abstract, they're all basically the same in the sense that, right, I have multiple tasks I have to do throughout the day, a variety of goals that I want to um, complete. I have to make decisions about, you know, which order I do things in um, when I'm at my computer, you know, do I have my email open? Do I have my Slack open so that I might see notifications that pull me away from a task that I'm trying to do in the moment? Do I do one task at a time to completion? Do I do a little bit of one and then switch to another one? So on and so forth. You know, we all we all deal with this type of thing every day. Yeah. So, you know, knowing everything that you know and and have learned about cognitive control and flexibility in these things, how have you how has that influenced how you sort of architect your work days in terms of sequencing and 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 thinking about how to optimize your workflow? Yes, um, I, I wish it would influence me more than it does, but the, <laughs> I think one um, pretty safe recommendation uh, I can give is to do one thing at a time, as it were. So uh, both because there is a, a cost to switching tasks, but we're also really not that good at it. So the idea that we can multitask is um, arguably sort of a bit of an illusion. What we really do is continually switching between tasks rather than actually doing several tasks in parallel. And because switches are costly, that's not very efficient. So it's a cost each time that you switch. But of course, you also have a cost because once you return back to the task you previously did, you, you really, in, in real life, you have a real sort of restart cost as well, right? In this experiment I described to you, well, you know, you, you have these trials every few seconds and you constantly switch between these two specific rules. There you don't have that much of a restart cost. But in real life, if you have just been deeply engaged with writing your your essay or your email, and now you you flip away to uh, you know answer a phone call, or you switch more likely from paper writing to constant emails to checking your your Twitter account and so forth, that really will incur a big restart cost, right? You getting back into your your paper writing will. Uh, will really be much harder after you switched away. And the more you do that, the harder it will be to really get back into that that mindset to sort of deeply think about what you were just uh, just juggling there. So in general, I would try and do one thing at a time. Set yourself a you know, particular goal. Say, well, the next hour I will be working on this paper and I will not be checking my emails and I will turn off my my phone and not check notifications and so forth um that certainly will make for 
uh, a much more efficient uh, way of getting your work done than it is to have um, all those tabs open at the same time and keep uh, checking on whether you get another message or a like on your social media on the max. What, um, what's an interesting or big question in the field that uh, you guys are pursuing right now? Well, one big question that I'm particularly interested in right now is the interplay between the stability and flexibility uh, piece that we talked about. So um, why is it that the same brain regions seem to be involved in you know, adjusting the focus on the task as well as in adjusting how ready you are to switch to another task? Can we sort of pass out what they're doing and how do people, you know, regulate these things concurrently? So this is, I think, really interesting, especially at the level of, of brain uh, mechanism. Another, I think, really big topic that hasn't been tackled much, but that's that's really intriguing is something I mentioned to you earlier, and that is that a lot of these effects where we can see in behavior really nicely how people seem to adapt to changes in in demand and there's there's other work where, where we and others have shown that people can also associate a particular you know control or attentional focus state with specific stimuli or cues and they retrieve them when they see that cue and all of that stuff is often running off without your conscious knowledge of it. And this is kind of really curious, right? Because by the very definition of cognitive control, we say, well, you use these internal goals to guide how you, uh, you know, deal with the, your surroundings, which sounds very intentional, right? Very deliberate. And it is in the sense that, oh, I instruct you to do this task and you're doing that task deliberately and intentionally. But it turns out that, these little, the mechanisms that allow you to do this thing efficiently and, you know, that, that that tune up or down just how much attention you actually need to pay to perform the task. These mechanisms that, that, that look very clever and they are clever seem to be running sort of below our, uh, our level of conscious perception. So we're not necessarily aware of our brain doing that. And I find that pretty intriguing. And there is not a lot of work on you know, that really tries to dig into this. How how come this is? Is this really something that people don't notice? Does it matter if you notice or not? Um, why is that? Uh, you know, and why doesn't it require a conscious awareness to adjust, you know, these very high-level cognitive processes in response to changes in the environment and so forth? So that piece, uh, I think is a really interesting one that's also not been uh, tackled much at all. So how much work goes on under the hood that we're not even aware of um, when we just decide to do a particular task? You know, a lot of stuff then runs off by itself, even though it looks very deliberate. Well, this is uh, fascinating stuff, and I look forward to uh, uh, seeing else what else comes out of your lab and, and in the field. Um, Dr. Tobias Egner, uh, thank you for your time. Uh, you're very welcome. It was a great pleasure chatting with you, and um, have a great day. Hey, everyone. 
I want to take a minute to tell you about a really cool health monitoring device I've been using for several weeks. It's called Lumen, and it's a handheld, pocket-sized device with a sleek design. It measures CO2 levels in your breath, which allows their technology to determine the extent to which your body is burning fats versus carbohydrates. Lumen helps improve your metabolic flexibility, your body's efficiency in shifting between using fats and carbs. It improves your ability to burn fat, which decreases your hunger levels and makes your body less dependent on snacking, and it can increase your energy levels by helping you develop a high-functioning metabolism. I use this device in the morning, before bed, and after meals and workouts to track my metabolism. With just a couple weeks of use, I learned a lot about which foods were causing my body to burn mostly fat, mostly carbs, or both, as well as how long I need to fast each day to promote fat burning. Lumen is great for anyone looking to optimize their health for either weight loss or athletic performance. The easy-to-use app allows you to track your results together with what you're eating and how you're exercising, and it syncs with other devices like the Apple Watch. Click the link in the episode description to learn more and use the code MIND, M-I-N-D, in all capital letters, to get $50 off your Lumen device today. 